morning are um, almost halfway through this uh, season of Lent as we journey to the cross to the celebration of, uh, of Easter. And so that puts us about, like I said, close to the halfway point of our, uh, of our sermon series, Words from the Cross. As each week, if you've been with us, each week in this season of Lent, we look at some of the last words of Jesus from the cross. So in week one, we talked about those first words that Jesus spoke that Luke tells us, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Last week, we talked about those second words also in Luke in regards in, in Jesus' conversation with the criminal, one of the criminals that was crucified, one of the two that was crucified next to him, and that response to that, that petition that that criminal makes, Lord Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responds to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Each week showing, each of those two weeks showing both the, the, the breadth and the depth of God's grace, of God's, of God's forgiveness. This morning, as we continue in this journey, we move from the Gospel of Luke to the Gospel of John. As we turn to the third word, from the cross, as um, the as, as John recounts it for us, and again, um, sharing with us each of these moments of Jesus, those six hours, moments from those six hours, from nine to three, that he spent on the cross. So again, this morning we pick up in John chapter nineteen. This is this is now Jesus on the cross, and we pick up in the middle of that chapter at verse twenty-three. And this is, this is what we read. It says, When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. The garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear, tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, these are our third words, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Lord, that your word would speak to us, these moments, this experience of Christ on the cross, and, and what you continue to teach, even in these most difficult moments of your life. May they impact us, shape us, speak to us and who we are called to be as your followers. We give these moments to you, and we give you thanks. In Christ's holy name, amen. When I was in high school, probably very similar to your high school experiences, um, though it was a, a mass of people, students, people tend to congregate by affinity and connection and friendships. You know, when you would walk into what we called the commons area, where I went to school, they have a lot of students hanging around between classes, 
but there would be kind of clumps of students, groups of, you know, maybe athletes were together or maybe band members were together or people that shared an affinity because of academic pursuits or music interests. It could be any number of reasons that people kind of formed communities within a larger community. And when, when I picture the scene of Jesus on the cross, when I, when I picture these moments, uh, there's a, there's, we know that there's a, a crowd, a community, if you will, that is gathered around the cross. Jesus and these two other criminals that, that are being crucified. And in that, what I, what I imagine the scene looked like was groups of people together based on a shared responsibility or a connection to Jesus or just uh, maybe a family identity that are, that are watching, observing, that are for one reason or another are there in the shadow of, of the cross and everything that's taking place. And, and John, and not just John, the other Gospels do this too, but John gives us some insight into two of these groups that are there at the crucifixion of Jesus. The first is, for me, the most perplexing group. Not perplexing because of why they were there, but perplexing because of their attitude about what is taking place. Their, their response to it, if you will. And, and that group is the soldiers. The, the Roman soldiers that are, that are responsible for the crucifixion of Christ and, and the crucifixion of these uh, other two criminals. Because they have played a part in the, the drama that has taken place up until this moment. The, the passion story. The, the, the arrest of Jesus. The, the beating of Jesus. The flogging of Jesus. The forcing him to carry his cross up that hill to Golgotha. And then... His crucifixion, the nailing of his body to the cross and the erecting of that cross there on that hill. They've been a part of every, every step of this as a Roman soldier would. And they're in the atmosphere of, of death, of, of these men and of Jesus dying, this agonizing death. And the scriptures paint a picture of complete indifference. They are completely indifferent to what is going on. And that is hard for me to grasp. It's maybe hard for you to grasp because for us, the cross of Christ is a focal point of, of faith and the experience of Christ. And we are so in tune and connected and attentive, maybe is the best word, to what Jesus is going through in these hours that he suffers and dies. And you get this group of, of soldiers that by, by the image that is, that is conveyed, the story that is told um, are completely indifferent to everything that is happening. And they have a hard time understanding that. I'm not saying I, don't, I understand why they wouldn't be sympathetic. But to be in this experience of death and to not even be aware or attentive or interested or in any level even compassionate to what is happening on the cross is, is very hard for me to rationalize in my own thinking, in my own contemplation of, of what is going on. And the only way I can begin to make sense of it is just by speculating that they are completely desensitized to it. They are absolutely desensitized to this, what would be for them very common, uh, maybe even everyday experience of crucifixion. The, the Romans were master 
executioners. When they would conquer a land or a nation or a people, one of the things that, that historians tell us that they did in mass was crucified both political and military enemies of, of Rome. And so we have historical accounts of them crucifying tens of thousands of people. And in fact, even in Jerusalem, it was a very common occurrence for there to be mass crucifixions. When you came into the city of Jerusalem, when you traveled in, you would often see crucifixions happening on the roads as you came into the city. It was the way the Romans warned you, don't misbehave. Do not disturb the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome or the peace of the people. Don't stir up trouble. And so the only, the only way this begins to make any sense to me is that they're just, they've done this day in, day, another day at the office. And so it's, not, it's so common, it's not even, uh, it's not even worthy of, of their attention. They're, they're desensitized. This happens to us on much smaller scales. And, and this, is why I can, I, I, this is why I kind of go this way, because I know there are things in life that I get desensitized to that I shouldn't be. Not this kind of violence, but, but some of you can probably identify as parents or grandparents, um, a movie maybe you saw growing up. I remember movies I saw as teenagers. And I thought, oh, that's a pretty good movie. That's a, that's a safe movie. And my kids, when my kids started to get older, I'd show them the movie. I would just, you know, I'd be on TV. I'd sit and watch this. And all of a sudden, when I'm now seeing something a little more attentively, not through the eyes of a, maybe a 16 or 17-year-old, but, but through the eyes of a parent with a 7 or 8-year-old, um, I realize that things I didn't notice the first time I watched the movie, maybe language or suggestive situations, are now happening. And I have to or had to um, kind of abandon the pursuit. You know, I got this, I do this in music. I got in trouble. One of the biggest moments of me getting in trouble, as I've, I've, I think I may have told you this story. Ryan has a, um, has a, has a, he's not a photographic memory, but he remembers everything. And um, I would just put, put music on when we'd be driving. And um, one day I was out, and for those of you that grew up in the 80s, this will connect with you. Wasn't even thinking about it, but um, the Beastie Boys, was on. Those of you that remember the Beastie Boys, Ryan was in the back seat. I wasn't even thinking about it. Wasn't even thinking about it. At dinner that night, Ryan started to recite the lyrics that he had heard in the car that day. And his mother was not happy. <laughs> now, I wasn't intent. I just, I was oblivious. I was desensitized to it. This, this happens. It happens in things we hear. It happens in things we see. Uh, I was in a, a seminary class when I, it was a, a counseling class, and it was specifically around women's issues. And I'll never forget, the, the professor showed us a video, a montage of advertising. Now, this would have been um, mid-'90s, later-'90s, of advertising, of snippets from commercials, beer commercials, food commercials, um, hair care products, all kinds of commercials that were common at that day. But they all had one thing in, in, in common. They all had, um, as part of the advertising campaign, um, sexualized women. It used them as, as sexual objects to sell a product in various, um, you know, skimpy outfits or in other suggestive ways. And just to kind of show us the way that advertising very often objectifies people, in this case women. 
Now, here's what I remember so much about that. I'd seen every one of those commercials on television, and I'd never thought once that they were objectifying women. But when I saw them all together, when my attention was raised to it, I recognized something that I saw every day that I was desensitized to. You can allow yourself to kind of imagine your own scenarios. My point is that's what I think on a far grander scale is happening. It's the only way I can make sense of this. They are completely oblivious to what Jesus is doing. This great cosmic story, salvific story, God is, is laying down his life. And they're just another crucifixion. Not even, not even cognizant of what's happening on the cross. And how do we know that? It was because John tells us what they were doing. And that is they were dividing up his clothes. They were spending this moment trying to figure out what they could get out of it. Because one of the bonuses of, of being on a crucifixion scene, of being a soldier at a crucifixion, was you got to keep whatever the condemned man owned. So whatever he had, the Roman soldiers would get to keep. And so in the day that Jesus lived, a, a Jewish man would typically have about five articles of clothing. He would have had shoes or, or sandals on his feet. He'd have had some sort of a, a turban on his head, a belt around his waist, and then he would have had a tunic over his, over his body and then a robe over the tunic. So it says, the scriptures tell us that they divided up his clothes among them. There was probably four soldiers, so they divided four of those garments up and each soldier took one, but there was one left over. That was the undergarment. That was the tunic. And so rather than tear it, rather than ruining it, it says that they cast lots, they, they gambled, they played a game to see who was going to get the tunic. And of course, John reminds us that this is in fulfillment of Psalm 22, 18. That's the scripture that he quotes. It says that they cast lots for my garments. It's a, it's a psalm that foreshadows the work of, of Jesus on the cross. But, but here's what I want you to, to just kind of think about for a moment. That in, in the shadow of the cross, in the very shadow of the cross, the soldiers are playing games. They are, are in the shadow of this sacrifice that God is making, and they're completely oblivious. They're more interested in what they can get for themselves. And I think we still play games in the shadow of the cross. I think you and I still find ourselves sometimes in, in light of this gift that God gives and, and this, this grace that is, is freely poured upon us, finding ourselves playing games, finding ourselves looking in other places for meaning and for purpose, pursuing the material like the soldiers are, pursuing, pursuing our own um, recognition, our own accomplishments. And turning a blind eye to that gift of purpose and meaning that we find through the sacrifice of Christ and the gift of life through faith. And so, maybe not in the extreme ways, but, but we tend to still play games in the shadow of the cross. And they cast lots for clothes while Jesus is on the cross casting himself for them. I mean, think about that. They, they cast lots for an article of clothing while Jesus is giving himself for them. They are the closest witnesses, along with a few others, to, to this work of God in Jesus, and they miss it. They're completely blind to it. 
And each of those things challenges me in my own faith. Where do I miss God? Where am I, where am I casting my lots for my own desires, my own gain, my own selfishness, rather than gazing upon the gift that God gives through the cross of Jesus Christ? And so they miss it. They miss it. They are on holy ground, and they never even know it. Now, John then tells us there's another group there. They're also on that same holy ground, and they don't miss it. They don't fully understand it yet, but they don't miss it. And that, those were the women, largely women, who came to be with Jesus, as close as they could to Jesus in this moment of his suffering and death. And don't ever lose sight of the fact that they came at great risk. Remember, there's a reason most of the disciples aren't there. There's a reason most of the disciples aren't a part of the story, because why? They were scared. Remember, they were afraid. If the Romans know we're with him, if the Romans know that we're part of that circle of, of connectedness, then we're going to be next. And so they're hiding, fearful for their lives. But there was a group that came even at risk to themselves, and that's the women. I want you to, to think about who is in that group. John tells us. First, and most significant for us in this part of the story is Jesus' mother, Mary. She's there at the foot of the cross. I can't begin to comprehend how painful this moment must have been for her. To watch her son, to watch the boy that she had raised, the child that she had nurtured, the man that she had loved, the one that she had followed herself, to watch this man of peace, this man who preached love, her baby boy, nailed to the cross and crucified. In fact, there is reasonable expectation, based on the common practice of the day, that the very tunic that the soldiers gambled over would have been the tunic she made for Jesus would have been her own work as they callously cast lots to see who's going to get it. She watches her son die. There's also in that group the sister of Mary, uh, most believed to be Salome, the mother of James and John, who very possibly were cousins of Jesus. But, but she's there. Now, if she was the mother, if this is... The, the sister who's the mother of James and John, then it's interesting because she would have not too long ago have been asking Jesus to make her sons uh, most important in the kingdom. Remember, let them sit in the seats of honor. That was, that was her petition. That was her understanding of what the kingdom of God meant, which means she doesn't yet fully grasp what the kingdom of God looks like, or at least she didn't in that moment. But she loves the king. She loves the one who, who leads and preaches and teaches. She loves Jesus. So she's there at the foot of the cross. Mary Magdalene is at the foot of the cross. We know her devotion to Jesus and how Jesus had changed her life. She's there. And Mary, wife of, of Clopas, is there, who scholars believe may have been Mary, the mother of Jesus, may have been that Mary's sister-in-law. They're all there, along with John, the beloved disciple. John, who gives us this perspective. 
And it is in their moment, standing on holy ground, because they are attentive to Jesus, because they're not focused on the ground, they're not casting lots for clothing, their eyes are not off the cross, that they become participants in a holy and divine moment. And that is these words that Jesus speaks. And this is what Jesus does. He looks at Mary, and he says to her, Mother, and then looking to John, the beloved disciple, he says, Mother, behold your son. And then to John, he says, John, he says to John, behold your mother. Now, these words at their surface don't seem near as powerful and significant as Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, or you will be with me in, in paradise. But they reveal to us an important truth about the character of Christ and the character of the community of those who follow Christ. And that is this. Family matters. Family's important. Even in, even in this moment of suffering and agony and, and death, and the throes of death, Jesus is not focused on himself. He's focused on others, as he is in every step of the journey. And, and he's focused specifically in this moment on his mom. Now, we believe that by this point in the life of Jesus, though we, we have no story of it, but we're, we're confident, and scholars are confident, that Joseph has passed away. So as the eldest son, it is Jesus' responsibility, it is his obligation to care for his mother, to provide for his mother, to support his mother. And in those moments, what we see is a son who is concerned for his mom and knows that he's not going to be there to continue to care and, and protect and provide for her. So in that moment, even of death, he looks to John and he says, John. Love her the way I love her. John, provide for her the way I provide for her. John, care for her the way I care for her. Then, in the same way to his mother, he says, behold your son. He's saying to her, you do the same. You love him as you've loved me. You care for him as you have cared for me. He is focusing in the very character and the very nature of what the kingdom of God looks like. See, Jesus is on the cross and he is breaking the power of sin. He is defeating the power of sin. And, and here's the truth. When, when the power of sin is defeated, love knows, has no limits. Love has no limits. Our selfishness, our sin is what, what really hinders love because we become self-centered. We become focused like those soldiers on what I can get, what's in it for me. And when, when that's the power of sin. And when sin gets broken, when we come into a more perfect relationship with God, love has no limits. And what, what Jesus wants to say is, don't limit love. You have a responsibility. Jesus understands that there is a responsibility to care for our family. When, when I'm with my family, when I'm with Tony, when I'm Ryan, when I'm with Cassidy, my brothers, my father, I'm on holy ground. That's, that's holiness, because that is the, the, the immediate responsibility God has called me to. I'm, I'm called to care for them, to have a passion for their well-being, to show them a limitless, unlimited love. But Jesus also redefines family in this moment, because John is not Mary's son. Mary is not, biologically speaking, John's mother. But Jesus is saying that in me, 
in this community of compassion, because that's who we're called to be. We're called to be a community of compassion. We care for each other. And so what happens is that I do have brothers biologically, but I have brothers in the family of God. I have sisters. Well, I don't have sisters, but I have sisters in the family of God, parents and, and children. When we do baptism, we live into this every time we do a baptism, especially for a child. And, and, and we as a community of faith and as the church commit to raising the child together with the parents. When I was growing up, I've told you, I had four women in my life I called mom. All of them were either mom, biologically, or were my close friends' mothers, and they were all part of the church, and we all spent life together. We did life together. We hung out together. But we were, we were family. We, we were family, and it was hard having that many moms because you could get in trouble that many more times when you have that many moms. <laughs> and I did. But, um, and there are that many more people out there who have stories that you should never, ever hear about me. But, um, but that's, that's what the family of God looks like. So, so here's what Jesus is saying, and, and he's, he's witnessing here, is that, that we, we have this limitless love. Jesus says, what is the greatest love? Is that you'd lay down your life for a friend, John 15, 13. You'd lay down your life for another, which is what Jesus is doing. But it's also what he's calling us to do, is to, to lay down our life for each other, to have no limits on the way that we would love one another. And to recognize that in the family of God, in this community of compassion that we call the church, as we should be, that there's nobody who doesn't have siblings. There's nobody that doesn't have parents. There's nobody that doesn't have children. We are the body of Christ together. And so we cast our lots for Christ and we cast our lots for each other. Not for meaningless pursuits, not for garments and scraps, but in that love of Christ. Jesus says... In first, well, Jesus didn't say. First Peter five seven says, "Cast your cares upon Him, because He cares for you." And when we do that, we cast our anxieties on Him. We cast our needs upon Him. We also opens our heart to then begin to not only experience that care of Christ, but begin to offer that to others, to share that care and compassion with with others. What does the church look like? It looks like a community of people who hear Jesus say to each of us, "Here is your brother." Here is your sister. Here is your mother. Here is your father. Here is your son. Here is your daughter. Not based on a family tree, not based on a trace lineage, but on a bond of the Holy Spirit. And so look around. I've got a lot of brothers and sisters. When we live into who Christ has called us to be, that's, that's what Jesus exemplifies even in this moment, this, this call to be a community of compassion, to cast our cares upon him and then, in turn, to let him care for us as we care for others. That's this divine moment that these witnesses get to experience in the shadow of the cross. Soldiers were there, too. They missed it. They weren't looking. They closed off any possibility that Jesus was who he said he is. Don't close off that possibility. Open your heart to hear the words that Jesus speaks, to be shaped by this call of compassion this call of love, and to recognize in the body of Christ, in the family of God, nobody, nobody walks alone. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this witness 
of love that you give and that you call us to. And help us to hear those same invitation that you gave to your mother, that you gave to John, to, to care for each other, uh, to, to, to love each other, and to make sure nobody in this community of compassion ever feels like they walk alone. May this not only be our desire, but may this be the truth of who we prove ourselves to be. We pray it in Christ Jesus' holy name. Amen. One of the common characteristics of a family is that uh, they uh, break bread together. And so, in these moments, we have an opportunity to, to break bread together and to come to the table and experience this means of grace, which is the gift of Jesus Christ. And so we remember that on the night in which Jesus gave himself up for us that night before these events on the cross that um, Jesus took bread and he gave thanks to God and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. It is broken for you. Every time you eat it, do it in remembrance of me. And then Jesus took the cup and he gave thanks to God and he gave it to them and said, this is my blood of a new covenant. Pour it out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Every time you drink this, do it in remembrance of me. Friends, let's pray. Lord, that we would share this meal. That we would partake with hearts of remembering. Remembering what you have done, what you have spoken, and how you have lived, the example you have given. And as we grow in faith, as we come and receive bread and juice, that we pay, pray for us is the body and blood of Christ that we would both remember our salvation through the blood of Jesus and that our call is to live as the body of Jesus, to, to live your love and to express a limitless love that knows no boundaries. So Lord, help us to do that faithfully every day of our life, knowing that one day we will receive the promise in full. One day we will share this meal at your heavenly banquet. But until that day, Lord, unite us together in ministry, empower us by your Holy Spirit. And use us always to the glory of Christ our Lord. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. I want to invite now our um, communion servers to come. And as they are making their way to one of our four stations. As the praise band continues to lead us in worship. Remind you, if you are new with us in these moments, as we celebrate communion, this is an open table. Everybody is invited to come and to receive Two stations in the front, two are in the back where you can receive the bread. It's given to you and then dip it into the juice and thereby receive the body and blood of Christ. On the table are the baskets. Those are for your prayer cards. Those are for the offerings. And, uh, and then lastly, if for whatever reason you're unable to come forward, let one of our ushers know. We'll bring communion to you. But friends, as the table's made ready, as we're invited to continue to contemplate this powerful love of God, you're invited to come to his table of grace.
gracious Lord, we recognize you do reign and you have broken the power of sin, you've broken the power of death, and you have freed us to love with a limitless love. Help us to carry that love into the world, to share it with all that we meet, to care for each other, and to love you through our actions. We go in your peace and your strength, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.